The title of our session is uh, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and the Family, Learning from the Doctor on the Family. And uh, you might be wondering, why do a session on Martin Lloyd-Jones on the Family? And I want to give you just five reasons why to do this. And I put this on your, on your note-taking outline. And, and the first reason is, is because he thought it was important. When, when he preached through Ephesians, you know, he, he went sequentially book by book, but when he published his sermons on Ephesians, he actually went and published the messages on the family second. He went and published chapter two first, and then he published chapter five second because he thought the information on the family was so important and critical to get into publication quickly. So he thought it was important. Uh, secondly, I think it's important to look at Lloyd-Jones especially on these scriptures, because it gets us behind all of these complementarian, egalitarian debates. I don't know if anybody has heard of this uh, gal, Kristen Dumay. She wrote a book called Jesus and John Wayne. And uh, she's a professor at Calvin University. And her thesis of the book is basically that white evangelicals just invented gender roles because they watched John Wayne movies and were influenced by the culture around them. And I can promise you, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wasn't influenced by John Wayne or, any, or or Hollywood or any of that, he was influenced by the Bible. So it's helpful for us to get back behind these whole, uh, the cultural debates uh, that are taking place now and just see what a faithful pastor said over 60 years ago uh, on this topic. Dr. Lloyd-Jones also, thirdly, I think is, is, is helpful here because he had a very keen theological mind he, he, and I'm going to explain this uh, later, but he was just naturally very inquisitive and became an expert at deduction. I was talking to this one apologist who was at our church last week, and, he, and, I, and I told him uh, about the work I'm doing with, with Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he basically said, stop reading Lloyd-Jones, you need to be reading N.T. Wright and, and uh, Barclay and, and, and all these guys. And, uh, and, and he said, Lloyd-Jones has, has nothing theological to add. And, and if you read his, his, uh, the, the, the commentary books, the sermons that he did on Romans, Ephesians, you know that, that even though he never had formal theological training, he was an autodidact. He just literally read, 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 and he applied this massive, brilliant mind to every issue. And I'm going to show you that later on in the presentation. But he, he really helps provide a lot to just theological categories and, and implications that are helpful for us to see. Um, fourthly, he modeled what he preached. You know, some guys preach something, and, and we're seeing this over and over again. Guys are disqualified because they, they fail to live to the high standard. Lloyd-Jones is one of those guys, you look at his life, and he, it's, it's obviously not without some blemishes, but you look at his life and he lived, what he, he lived the message. There's not any disqualifying sin in his record. And the fifth reason why I wanted to do this and felt compelled to do it is because I'm doing a doctoral dissertation on it. So I wanted, I wanted to make the best use of my own time. Just in full disclosure, I didn't have time to do anything else. So uh, Lloyd-Jones, here we are um, on, on the family. 
Let me give you just a brief biographical sketch on Lloyd-Jones for those of you who aren't familiar with his ministry because he was British. The majority of his ministry took place overseas, so some of you might not be aware just about the the details of of his life. Um, J.I. Packer called him, quote, a great man, a great man. And by that, Packer meant that Lloyd-Jones is the type of person that would have been great at whatever he did. It's kind of like Patton, right? If Patton won a general, he would have won Super Bowls as a football coach. I mean, Patton is one of those just remarkable people. And in in some respects, Lloyd-Jones was that type of person. He was a remarkable individual. And everywhere he he went, he had he had that type of effect on people. He was without a doubt one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. Emil Bruner, who was a neo-Orthodox theologian, not even sympathetic to his theology, said he was the best preacher that he had ever heard. Um, J.I. Packer said, quote, For several months during 1948 and 1949, I sat under the Sunday evening ministry of the late D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It seems to me in retrospect, listen to this, that all I have ever known about preaching was given me in those days. So Packer says, all that I know about preaching was given to me just listening to Dr. Lloyd-Jones on Sunday nights in 1948-1949. So we're talking about somebody that was, was a very, very gifted preacher. He edited his, book, his uh, sermons into books, and many of you have probably read those books, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures, The Sermon on the Mount, Faith on Trial, which is his exposition of Psalm 73, What is an Evangelical, and then probably his, his most influential work for pastors, Preaching and Preachers, which were the lectures that he gave at Westminster Seminary on preaching in 1969, which were later published into into preaching and preachers. He was born on 20 December 1899. And, And that's a helpful date to remember because that means that any year in the 20th century coincided with his age. So because he was December 20th, 1899, 1944, you basically know with the exception of 11 days, he's going to be 44 years old. So that helps keep track of, of, of where he is. His parents were probably not born-again believers. They were marginally Christian. They were more interested in liberal politics. His mom was a, a fan of David Lloyd George and the Labor Party, if you, if you study British history around the, the turn of the century. So they were very political. His father owned a shop which burned down in 1910, uh, a shop in Wales, and uh, that, when it burned down, their house was above the, the shop, like many people's employment and homes were in those days. And, and Martin and his father and his brother barely escaped with their lives. And there were several results from that. One, it meant that it, it left his father basically uh, without financial means. They didn't have insurance, anything like that. So his father's business was effectively ruined at that. The, the family would eventually go bankrupt. And really, at, at the age of 10 years old, Lloyd-Jones carried that weight on his shoulders, that financial strain of the family. Uh, he would say later that he was never an adolescent. He just grew up. 
And because he survived that night, it, it placed on him a burden to help his fellow man. He, he felt like God had spared his life for a reason. And that, that reason was in some way to give his life back to others. So in 1914, four years later is when his dad eventually declared bankruptcy. They just tried to make it. They moved shops. They couldn't make it. And so in 1914, they moved to London and his dad became a milkman. They started delivering milk and, and, and Lloyd-Jones would, would uh, be the milk boy. He would be delivering milk and he, he started working really hard in his studies uh, at this point and, and was really excelling. And at age 16, was accepted to be a resident at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, London, which is a training hospital, famous training hospital. They didn't do the whole college thing. And then you're, then you're accepted into medical school. You were designated as a medical student uh, right out of high school. And so he started at St. Bart's when he was 16 years old. And the culture at this hospital was, was quite remarkable. The doctors at St. Bart's really believed that they walked on clouds. There, there's a story of, of the king coming to St. Bart's with a medical issue, and, and one of the doctors was supposed to see him, and he wouldn't finish or wouldn't go see him until he finished giving his lecture. So he made the king wait for him. Um, the, one biographer they said this about one of the St. Bart's doctors. He said they carried a consciousness of effortless superiority. A consciousness of effortless superiority. So they knew they were smarter, more intellectual than others. And they, they carried that and they, that was the nature of their, their disposition. So at St. Bart's, Lloyd-Jones eventually was, a, was paired with a physician named Lord Horder, H-O-R-D-E-R. And Lord Horder would eventually become the Keene's physician, the Queen's physician. So he was a very, very influential doctor. And Lloyd-Jones was his brightest student, was his best student. It was, he was the student that Horder took under his wing. And one of the things, and this is really helpful, I think, for, for pastors and, and for those that study scripture, because this is how Lloyd-Jones brought it over. But one of the things that, that Horder did is he taught using the Socratic method. And so he would ask his students, they would come up to a patient and say, hey, do you see this person? You know, these are the elements. And he would start asking his students uh, to, to diagnose this patient and he grilled his students not just with medical information but he made his students learn the laws of logic and deduction in what they called first principles which was establishing a base of knowledge in which to work through before you begin to actually try and make us very specific diagnosis if you've ever seen that show house Y'all remember that show House where he's an expert at diagnosing people and ruling things out? That's essentially what Horder and Lloyd-Jones were like. They could diagnose diseases and, and illnesses by, by thinking outside the box and, and ruling out other things uh, using the rules of logic. Lloyd-Jones would practice until 1927, and even after he left to go into ministry, 
everywhere he went, he was probably the brightest doctor in the village or town that he was preaching. So people would continue to bring him medical cases throughout the rest of his ministry, especially in, in Aberavon, where he, where he would, would go and serve. When he was pastoring in London in the later years, the difficult counseling cases where pastors couldn't discern whether it was some type of physiological mental illness or maybe a demonic attack or, you, you know, these things, they would bring them to Lloyd-Jones and he would sit down with them and try and diagnose what, what the issue was. So he, he had a very sharp mind and he, he, in his free time throughout the rest of his life, he would, he would read the British medical journals just as a, just for fun. Um, so, so we're talking about a, a, a very brilliant individual who was, who was interested in his study. So he began to feel called to ministry though, as he was treating Lord Porter's patients. And he realized that so many of these patients, what their real struggle was, was sin. They were struggling with gluttony and drunkenness and venereal diseases and these things. And Lloyd-Jones realized that he could, fi- he could help fix the person's body. But in reality, what the issue was lay at the soul, lay in the heart. And so he began, he began to be very burdened about helping people spiritually. And, and at this time, he also became very burdened about the country of Wales, where he was from. So here he is working with the upper echelon of, of London society with Hoarder. And he has a burden to go to some backwoods place in, in Wales and, and work with the people uh, to, to help bring spiritual revival and rejuvenation. So he began to sense this call, and ultimately the Lord made a way for him to go to a church called the Bethlehem Forward Movement Hall in Aberavon, Wells. It was a blue-collar town, and the Lord opened the door to go there. He married his wife, Bethan, about the same time, and there were some questions about how this ministry thing would work. You know, he hadn't been to divinity school. He hadn't he hadn't gone through the normal channels that, that a minister of the gospel would go through. And Bethan asked him, which is his wife, she, she asked him, well, if people ask me, how do you know that you can pastor? How do you know that you can preach? His immediate reply was, quote, I can preach to myself. I know that I want to preach and I believe I will be able to say it, end quote. So... He takes the pastorate. He, he starts in January, February 1927 is when he arrives in this place from London. And I want to read you, this is just a reporter who visited in July. So six months essentially after he began his pastorate there. This is a reporter, goes to, to listen to him preach at Aberavon. And the reporter says, quote, Mine was a human human failing of curiosity on visiting the Bethlehem Forward Movement Church, Aberavon, last Sunday. Curiosity soon vanished, however. The presence of the young doctor in the pulpit, the tremendous zeal revealed in his preaching, the air of great faith and certainty that he carried all combined to sweep it away. I remain to wonder and to respect. I do not crave the reader's pardon for abandoning my usual manner of writing my impressions and forgiving and forgiving to the best of my ability as much of the sermons as possible. I do this simply because the sermons in themselves were stirring 
because Dr. Lloyd-Jones has something to say and because they are the words of one who has felt himself forced to speak by a greater than human power, end quote. So God really blessed his ministry there when he, when he, when he got to Aberavon, Sandfields. There were about 150 members, I think 146 to be exact. When he would leave almost 12 years later, there would be 800 members. And most of those were by conversion, not by pew walking. So the Lord gave him really a remarkable preaching ministry there. While he was traveling around preaching, you've probably heard the name G. Campbell Morgan Does that name ring a bell? Maybe y'all have read his commentaries on the Gospels. Um, Very influential preacher at at the beginning of the 20th century. G. Campbell Morgan had become, for the second time, the pastor of Westminster Chapel, London, which was really the the most influential nonconformist church in in England. And and G. Campbell Morgan had heard Lloyd-Jones preach actually in America and had continued just to follow his ministry. And he knew that it was about time for him to retire. He was late 70s, early 80s. And he wrote to Lloyd-Jones and, and said, basically, hey, keep your, keep your future open. I'd like you to consider coming to Westminster Chapel. And, and the Lord just kind of closed, began to just give Lloyd-Jones a sense that his ministry there in that, in that blue-collar town in Aberavon was over. And in, in 1939, just months before the war started, he came to London to co-pastor Westminster Chapel with uh, G. Campbell Morgan. And, and literally he got there, like I said, months before the, the, the war started. And, and you, you know, you think going through COVID is tough. Imagine bombs going off around your church building. Imagine some of your members not coming back to the Sunday evening service, which happened because they were killed by, by bombs in the blitz. So they, they pastored that church together until 1943 is when G. Campbell Morgan stepped down. And then Lloyd-Jones would be the solo pastor of Westminster Chapel, which if, has anybody ever been to Westminster Chapel? It's literally a mile from Buckingham Palace. So we're talking about right there in the heart of, heart of London. It's, it's, um, it, it's, it's a very influential church that you know, people would come in, different from Aberavon, people would come in from, from an hour away on the subways and buses uh, to, to Westminster Chapel to hear Lloyd-Jones preach. Sunday, what he would do is Sunday morning, he would do an exposition primarily for believers, Sunday night, he would do evangelistic messages. And then Friday night, he would do doctrinal studies. So, I mean, he was preaching three times a week when he was at the chapel. And more people would come in on Sunday night for the evening service than were even there on Sunday morning. When he would travel to preach, he would take his evangelistic messages that he was doing on Sunday night and go preach. And I, I heard Sinclair Ferguson once, he was g- talking about Lloyd-Jones, and he said when, when he would come to Scotland, he said everybody was amazed by how deep Dr. Lloyd-Jones's preaching was. And Sinclair said, I'd gone to Westminster and I knew what he was doing, preaching his evangelistic sermons. He said, I didn't have the heart to tell him that he was just preaching his evangelistic sermons up in Scotland. And they weren't even hearing the expositions that he was doing on, uh, on Sunday morning. 
Another story uh, Sinclair, Sinclair told about when, when Lloyd-Jones came to Scotland when he was a young man, he said the first night that he was preaching, he couldn't go. He had a conflict and, and wasn't able to make it, but he knew a girl at his church that, that was going. And the next day he saw that girl and he said, how was it last night? And Sinclair said, I'll never forget what she said. She said, it felt like the building was about to cave in. Such was the presence of God in that building. So it just gives you, gives you a, uh, an indication, I think, of the power of how God used this man. Now, one of my particular interests in Lloyd-Jones is in the 60s, there was a movement that really swept the whole world called the ecumenical movement. Many of y'all are probably aware of the ecumenical movement, which basically said we should all partner together as long as we share the same Christian baptism. Doesn't really matter what we believe. Doesn't really matter what we confess about Christ. What matters is that we call ourselves Christians and that we can lock arm in arm together. We've all been baptized, so on and so forth. And and Lloyd-Jones, as famous and, and influential as he was, really became a man standing alone in the wilderness in the, in the 60s. And he said, no, we should really only partner with those who share our convictions and our beliefs that are people that are actually truly born again. Because the basis of Christian unity is, is not the, the claim to be Christian, but it's that you're actually a Christian. That's who we're actually unified with in the, in the power of the Spirit. And so Lloyd-Jones really stood on an island. And, and even as much as, as we love reading Packer on things and, and John Stott, uh, there was a, a difference between them and a real parting of the ways, unfortunately. Um, and, and I think in the, in the end, though, Lloyd-Jones was vindicated and I think is being vindicated. And I think that's why there's a lot of interest in Lloyd-Jones because Lloyd-Jones was willing to stand alone with conviction when others were not. And he was willing to do that because he felt like even though there was a minority in number, there was power in, in being on the right side of God. And I think there's something to be said there. And I think there's, that's why there's a, a spurring interest in, in Dr. Lloyd-Jones. So now let me just talk about instruction for husbands and wives. And I want to give you an insight into his mind and how he approached things logically. So obviously you heard me preach through Ephesians 5, 22 to, to 33. And then, you, you know, you know, the follow on section regarding the instructions to children and parents. You've studied that text for yourself. I'm sure just reading through the scriptures. When you study that text, what are the, what are your takeaways in terms of observation? Let me, let me show you some of the, the observations that, that Lloyd-Jones made on that whole section of Scripture. I'm going to show you eight observations he gave, and then I'm going to give you some of the specific insights. Um, the first is, just because of the fact that we've become Christians doesn't mean we are automatically right in all we do. Just because you've become a Christian doesn't mean you are automatically right. 
And, and what Lloyd-Jones meant by this is he thought evangelists oversold the Christian experience and basically said, if you become a Christian, all your trials and issues and, and everything is going to go away. You're going to be you're going to be living this type of life now. When in reality, when you become a believer, that's when the struggles actually start. Because now you're opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you really have to begin to learn what it means to walk in the will of God and walk under the Lordship of Christ. And he points out that we enter the Christian life with all types of wrong ideas and misnomers that must be corrected by the teaching of God's Word. And that's exactly what Paul's doing with husbands and wives. He's instructing. He's instructing believers instructing children. By the way, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you don't have to submit to your parents anymore. You still need to submit. That's, that's important for you to understand. Second, Christianity actually creates new problems. Christianity actually creates new problems. Before, you had two unbelievers, theoretically, who are married. Now you have a believer and an unbeliever. They're unequally yoked. You've got a new problem now. You have a child who's born again. Their parents are unbelievers. Now you have an issue. How are they going to relate to one another? Let me give you a quote. Here he says, thus, almost inevitably, with the enlightenment that comes with Christianity, new problems arise, which had never to be faced before. So we gather from this passage that the great change which takes place in regeneration has a tendency to raise new problems. The result is that we have to think very carefully to discover exactly what is right in this new life and how we are to apply this new teaching to the new situation in which we find ourselves. Third, Christianity has something to say to every aspect of life. And this is where this whole theological emphasis on the Lordship of Christ comes into play. Lloyd-Jones almost sounds Kyperian at this point. He says, quote, There is no aspect of life which it does not consider and which it does not govern. There must be no compartments in our Christian life. My Christianity must enter into my married life, into my relationship to parents, into my work, into everything I am, and into everything I do. So the Lordship of Christ is over everything. Fourth, I thought this one was interesting. God's Word does not contradict itself. The Old Testament isn't contradicted by the New Testament. Obviously, there's fulfillment in the New Testament. But the Old Testament isn't contradicted by the teaching in the New Testament. And you see this in this passage where, specifically? 
in in the uh, in verse thirty one, right, where Paul quotes Genesis chapter two, that there is there is a fulfillment going on. There is continuation. It's not a truncated. This is new covenant and the old covenant. The old teaching is is done away with. The reason why he emphasized this is because there's 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 there was and there always are people who say that the God of the Old Testament is an ogre and a monster, and the God of the New Testament is loving and kind, and and now relationships are different. And Lloyd Jones was really emphasizing the continuity that God is no God doesn't change, and and the way that God governs is is, is you know there's there's fulfillment but there's not contradiction fifth christianity and this is lloyd jones you know he loved logic he loved deduction he loved argument so he says christianity always gives the reason for the imperative christianity always gives the reason for the imperative so you look at these commands that that are given in ephesians 5 and 6 well there's argument and rationale for why the commands are given. And I think that's helpful as pastors to remember the why. The why is important. In fact, the why is probably most important. People need to know why they're told to do what they're supposed to do. And Lloyd-Jones makes the point, we're not just, we're not just puppets. We're not just uh, toy army men that are, that are marching along. We're, we're Uh, given commands, but God also acknowledges that we have a mind and he gives us the rationale for those commands. Six is the intricate connectedness between doctrine and practice. The intricate connectedness between doctrine and practice for Lloyd-Jones Doctrine and application are wedded together like bark on a tree. They always go together. Uh, right practice is always grounded in right doctrine and vice versa. Let me give you, this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think, I think it'll be helpful for you. He says, doctrine and practice must never be separated because each helps the other and each illustrates the other. There are certain respects in which the passage we are looking at is to me one of the most he's talking about ephesians 5 and 6 one of the most astounding in the whole of the bible i am not saying it is the greatest but i say it is one of the most astounding here we are in this epistle to the ephesians in chapter 5 and towards the end of the chapter what is happening in this part of the epistle well says everybody you are now in the practical section of the epistle the great doctrinal section of course was chapters one two and three a little came into chapter four but now we have come down into the realm of practicalities and ordinary relationships and most ordinary matters never was the apostle more practical than he he is in your section wives husbands children's parents servants masters a purely practical section of the epistle yet you notice and have not you always been amazed at, the, at this when you have read it for yourself or when you have happened to be in a marriage service and this section of scripture has been read? Have you not been astounded and thrilled to the very marrow of your being as you find that the apostle in dealing with this most practical matter suddenly introduces us to the most exalted doctrine? In telling wives and husbands how to behave towards one another, he introduces the doctrine of the nature of the church. 
in the relationship of the church to Christ. Indeed, I must go further. In this very section, the apostle gives us his most exalted teaching of all about the nature of the church in relationship of the church to Christ. This is something that we should never lose sight of. So doctrine and application, they go together. They always go together. And there's lots of, lots of pastoral implications you could make from that. Normally when somebody is living a life of sin, there's also wrong doctrine, wrong-headed thinking that is taking place at the same time. And wrong-headed thinking leads to sin. Seven, the apostle approaches issues indirectly with general principles. Wait, did I, did I miss number six? No, oh, I didn't write it. So six is intricate connection between doctrine and practice. And then seven is the apostle approaches issues indirectly with general principles. This is, this is really helpful to think about in terms of your, um, your exegesis and, and how you, you uh, approach a problem. So here you have a problem of how do people that are believers relate to one another in various relationships, husband, wife, children, parent, master, servant. And, and, and what Lloyd-Jones is saying is rather than just saying, okay, let me just throw out broad principles for all of these. Let me approach it from a slight angle. And what's the slight angle that Paul uses to approach all these things? Remember, it's in verse 21. It's submission. He weaves submission through all of these dynamic relationships. So that's the, that's the indirect approach that Paul makes, and, and Lloyd-Jones is arguing that we should make when we approach a problem, is you take, a, take an angle, in, in this case submission, and then you begin to apply it generally. And then you flush out other principles from from that approach. Can you read that in your notes? The yep. Number seven? Yep. Yep. The apostle approaches issues indirectly with general principles. Let me let me give you a, a direct quote from Lloyd Jones here. He said, "Never jump at a problem. Never tackle it in and of itself. Get hold of the great principle or governing doctrine." So, in this case, it was submission. And then Paul tracks that through. And that's what Lloyd-Jones is saying, is, is take a step back and, and try and understand a, uh, an indirectly a general principle and then apply it. Eighth, and, and this is probably in line with what Dr. Uh, David Doran was saying this morning, but the apostle approaches the issue of marriage not in a party spirit, so it's not, it's not 
yeah, 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 you know, I got you, I'm taking the side of the wife or I'm taking the side of, of the husband. It's instructions that are given to both, reason that are given for both. It's not, uh, it's not given in a um, polemical gotcha argument. So those were his, his general observations as he's looking at, at the whole issue of the family and, and this whole section of, of Ephesians. And I, I want to now focus in on some of his ins- specific instructions that he gave to, to wives, to husbands. And we could talk some about the instructions he gives to children, but I want to talk about the instructions he gave to parents and give you some helpful insight on some of the things he said to parents. And then if we have time, I'll give you some, some family anecdotes just of how he applied this personally. So hopefully we'll have time to do that. But let me just give you just some, some thoughts on how he he then approached this in terms of the, the marriage relationship. So first, you've, sometimes I hear with, with complementarians and, and working with CBMW, like I did for three years, I traveled the country speaking on issues related to complementarianism and headship and submission. And sometimes I would hear from even complementarians, well, those, those things are part of marriage, but those aren't the main things. In marriage, that, that's part, headship and submission. That's part of our marriage, but that's not the main thing. And Lloyd Jones would beg to differ. He said, "Quote: What the wife is required to keep her eye on and maintain in maintaining the harmony is the element of submission." While the husband has to keep his eye on the element of love. So Paul is picking out, listen, the chief characteristic, the chief contribution that is to be made by each of the partners in this wonderful relationship, which can demonstrate the glory of the Christian life so clearly. The addressed, the address, therefore, to husbands is to love your wives and so on and so forth. So. Lloyd-Jones thought that these imperatives were the chief responsibility and contribution that each husband and wife were to to demonstrate. Another astounding quote. Lloyd-Jones believed, this is, he, he gave these specific messages in 1960. 1960. And he, you know, you think of the 60s. The 60s is a time where the moral fabric uh, across the West is starting to fray, and we're, we're you know we, we talk about the fraying fabric now, but but uh, it really began then. And Lloyd Jones attributed the fray to starting with the breakdown of authority in the marriage relationship. He he believed it started with women rejecting the role of submitting to their husbands. He said. Why is all this so important, and especially today? 
Why is it more important that I should have been doing what I've been doing rather than giving my opinions on politics or some international problem? It is because the failure to understand and to implement this very teaching is the cause of most of the problems in the world today. The basic problem in the world today is the problem of authority. The chaos in the world is due to the fact that people in every realm of life have lost all respect for authority. Whether it is between nations or between parts of nations, whether it be in industry, whether it be in the home, whether it be in the schools or anywhere else, the loss of authority. And in my view, it all really starts in the home and in the married relationship. Now, what he said about us here in the States, I find absolutely remarkable and quite, quite possibly prophetic in the best sense. He said, then on the other side, feminism has led to aggressiveness on the part of the wife, the mother. She is setting herself up as an equal and undermining the influence of the father in the minds of the children. The unhappy result is the totally false and wrong approach to the whole question. I do not say this in a spirit of criticism. We are seeing this increasingly in this country, but to nothing like the extent to which they are seen in the United States. There you have what may more or less be called, listen to this, a matriarchal society. And the man is becoming increasingly regarded merely as the one to provide the dollars, the wage earner, the man who brings the necessary money. The woman, the mother is the cultured person and the head of the home and the children look to her. This false and scriptural view of man and woman. The, fa- the father and mother leads to a matriarchal society, which it seems to me is most dangerous. The result is, of course, the growth of crime and all the terrible social problems with which they are grappling in, in that country. Then, because they influence every other country through their films and in various other ways, this attitude is being spread throughout the entire world. A matriarchal society with the woman as the head and center of the home is a denial of the biblical teaching and is indeed a repetition of the old sin of Eve. End quote. So, so Lloyd-Jones is tracing this breakdown in, in culture and society to the breakdown where authority is being broken at its most foundational and fundamental level, which is the home. That's why it's so important for our churches. If you want to have a strong church and then start building out from that, we have to get this right because it's directly tied to the authority ultimately of, uh, of God. And, and it begins there with the home. He says, until God is the authority and man and wife submit themselves to him until they do all things as under the Lord and realize that it is the same sort of headship as that of God over Christ and Christ over man, there is no hope. It is as men and women in the last hundred years have increasingly departed from the authority of the Bible that this terrible social blight and problem has become more and more evident. I know that I shall be told... You obviously want to go back to that stern, repressive, autocratic, Victorian husband and father. That is quite wrong. I know that much of the modern problem is due to a reaction against Victorianism, and I condemn Victorianism as much as the present position. We must go back to the Bible. 
I am not advocating a return to the Victorian idea. I say, come back to God, come back to Christ, come back to the revelation and the authoritative word of God. Look again at his perfect plan, man and the woman by his side, complimenting him, his help me, loving one another, revering, respecting, honoring one another, but never confusing the two spheres. So that was his, his challenge specifically to the wives. To the husbands, he would say, you are the head, you are the leader, you are, as it were, the Lord in this relationship. But because you love your wives, the leadership will never become a tyranny. And though you are Lord, you will never become a tyrant. And, and throughout his messages on, on, on the husband's love for the wife, he did multiple messages. He would always cross-reference 2 Timothy 1.7. Jot that down, 2 Timothy 1.7, which reads, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And he referenced that verse because he said, Look, the husband has been given a special power and authority in the home, but it's to be tempered with love and self-control. And that's the life in the Holy Spirit. It's always tempered. The power comes with the love and the self-control. Lloyd-Jones would, would add, interestingly, a lot of people, you know where Paul is saying, and Christ is, is himself its Savior, talking about the church. Most commentators say, okay, at that point, the, the distinction between the husband and Christ stops because the husband isn't the, the Savior of, of the wife. And, and Lloyd-Jones disagreed with that in a modified way. He said, in a sense, in a general sense, not in a salvific sense, Savior can also mean preserver. He said, the husband is one who is to preserve his wife. He said, quote, the wife is the one who is kept, preserved, guarded, shielded, and provided for by the husband. That is the relationship as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. So the husband nourishes and cherishes the wife and the wife should realize that that is her position in this relationship. The husband is the preserver. He is the savior of the body. So again, not in a salvific way, but in a sense, he believed that the husband preserved the wife and, and guarded her, shielded her, so on and so forth, that this was the husband's responsibility. Now, in regard to parenting, he said a lot on parenting, so I had to try to, dedu you know, to deduce this down to just a few things. But let me just give you four principles that he gave on, on parenting. First, he said the parents have the responsibility of raising the children in the fear of the Lord. And this cannot be pushed off to any other institution or authority. In Great Britain, there was a big problem, probably still is with what they call boarding schools, where parents send their kids off to, to live at an at a institution and, and to be raised there and to be schooled there. And, and Lloyd-Jones, I mean, he probably had, you, you think how many people in London probably had their kids in boarding schools. And he's saying, basically, I tell you, if you have your kid in boarding school, you're not obeying this command that you personally are the one responsible for bringing up that child up into maturity, up into the point where they're ready to make decisions for themselves. He, 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 he gave advice that the parent is to come alongside the church 
and, and help apply uh, the sermons that the children are hearing, to help apply the lessons that they're learning, and to take responsibility. He said it's the most important thing a parent can do is to take the responsibility of that child's uh, rearing in, in the fear of the Lord uh, under their under their purview. That was the most resp- important responsibility of the parent. So let me, let me, do y'all have these down? Because if so, I can write these as well. It's interesting how reversed that is today. If you think about the, where you have the role of the church primary in Lloyd Jones' mind and the family coming alongside the church, where today it is well, I think he would still say that the primary responsibility is right the parents, and he's just giving practical advice on how those two authority spheres come together. That the parent, you know, there's obviously the parent is teaching the the children, and, and I'll get into what he he thought about that. But but one, he would say parents. own the responsibility that they're given mm-hmm. two parenting is not mechanical and he really deplored people that said they had a 12 step plan to uh, having a, a godly child and and, you know, we've got this system that if you just apply this system and send, a, send us $100 in the mail, that, you know, your, your kid's going to turn out like St. Francis of Assisi or, or whatever. He, he thought that was bosh because ultimately the, the, the salvation of a child is in the Lord's hands. And uh, it, it's, it can never be reduced to uh, a mechanical Method, right? It's Proverbs twenty two six is a maxim, not a rule. You know, train up your child in the way he should go, and when he's older, he shall not depart from it. That's a maxim, as all proverbs are. It's not. It's not a rule that if you do X Y, you will always get Z, uh, because salvation is the Lord's doing. So parenting is not mechanical in the sense that if you do certain things, you'll get certain results. Which means that there's a lot of wisdom involved, doesn't it? In, in, terms, of, in terms of how we approach this. Third, and this is, this is, I think, a really interesting insight. He says, a salvation decision must never be pressed upon the child. A salvation decision must never be pressed. And and the reason he said this is because children really under the age of 12 will basically say or believe anything a parent tells them to believe just because they want to please their please their parents and and um, and they're not to the point where 
they can necessarily think for themselves. Let me give you a quote here because I think it'll help help just process this. He says, quote, you are displaying a profound ignorance of the way of salvation. You can make a little child decide anything. You have the power and the ability to do so, but it is wrong. It is unchristian. It is not spiritual. In other words, we must never be too direct in this matter, especially with the child. Never be too emotional. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's the Holy Spirit who must provide the, the new birth through the word of God. So he said, be very careful about pressing, pressing upon a child to, to make a quote decision and, 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 and pray a prayer. Because in his experience, he had seen more often was the case, people made professions of faith as children and then later on would renounce, renounce the faith, renounce Christ when they were older. So he saw that a lot. Uh, he also said, and this is the, uh, the last one I'm going to give you is this is a positive one is bring Christianity to bear in all of life. So the teaching that the, the parent is to give is comprehensive. He loved to quote Deuteronomy six where Moses instructs the children of Israel to, to put the law of God on their doorposts and, and on, their, on, their, uh, on their wall and that to, to speak of the law of God when they're rising, when they're lying down, when they're, when they're eating. And Lloyd-Jones basically said what you want to do is you want to talk about God and his lordship in, in Christ uh, all, at every opportunity you can, but not in the sense where you're trying to press your, your necessarily beliefs upon the child, but you're wanting the child to see how everything in the world relates to God. And then as they grow, they're going to ask questions. And when they have those, they ask those questions, you have the opportunity to explain what you believe and why you believe it and why you're different uh, from those in the world. So those were his general instructions on parenting now we have five minutes. Do y'all want some anecdotes about his life, or do y'all want to ask some questions? What would y'all prefer? Do you want me to tell a few stories about his personal family life, or do y'all want to ask some questions? Yes, sir. I would just like to make my testimony to you. Well put, servant, Roy Jones, and Grant Castleberry. You have my voting guy. Hmm. Thank you, Thank sir. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. For presenting that so mm. elegantly. Mm. Thank you. Touched hearts. Thank you. So the, the guy have yep. any problems with family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me let me just um, let me just tell you a little bit about his family life because I think I think y'all be interested to hear. Okay, you've heard heard about the man. You've heard him teach. Let me tell you a little bit about him as a husband. And uh, a little bit about him as a as a father and grandfather. Um, one, his, his he met his wife Bethan when he was fourteen years old when he moved to London right after that fire, and they went to the Welsh Church on on Charing Cross Road. And her wife, the Phillips family, her dad was a was a eye doctor. They sat right behind them in the pew on that Sunday. For, for him, it was love at first sight at 14 years old. She was two years older than him. So she didn't have the time of day for him in high school. She didn't have the time of day. And she had 27 marriage proposals. 
of which Lloyd-Jones was one, and she turned him down. So she turned him down. And when he, she was 29 and he was 27, she finally agreed that, that she would marry him. So it, it, uh, it took a while. So, they, so remember I told you they got married you know, uh, right there at the beginning of 1927. He started his pastorate that same time, 1927. So they go to Aber Avon to Sandfields, and God gives him this incredible preaching ministry. You know, you hear about the people coming to faith and, and uh, just read crazy things, witches being saved, all sorts of stuff like this. And about a year, year and a half into the ministry, his wife was doing something out in town. She was riding a bus in town, and there was a deacon on the bus from the church. And he said to Bethan Lloyd-Jones, he said, you know, we hear your husband's sermons on the gospel and, and all these things. It's just amazing to hear. It just, you know, brings us up to heaven. And then the deacon looked at her and he said, but are you saved, my dear? And she went home and she realized that she wasn't actually born again. Now, it wasn't that she was a known unbeliever, but she just realized that she didn't have that joy. She didn't have that true saving faith. And so in a sense, she was brought to faith under her husband's preaching ministry. So she was, she was saved there in the, in the late 1920s under, uh, under Martin's ministry. Just a couple other interesting things about their relationship. Martin was was basically completely useless in terms of practical housekeeping things. <laughs> Just virtually useless. Uh, he had a mind that was rivaled Einstein, but in terms of of doing practical things around the home, you know, he he was completely incompetent. And, and I came across this quote. This is from his grandson. This is, this is from his grandson, Christopher Catherwood. He said, There was complete certainty in our minds that she ran the Lloyd-Jones household in the sense of the day-to-day stuff. She did so much with love and care. She was no martinet. Her sense of humor was far too strong for that anyway. But the main reason was that she needed to. Both the Lloyd-Jones brothers, talking about his other brother, were, when it came to the practical side of life, as impractical as they were intellectually able. And they were two exceptionally gifted men. Martin's physical speed of reaction was in inverse proportion to the rapier-like thrust of his intellect. (laughs) We remember our grandmother so often crying out, Come on, Jones! As he pondered slowly along, his mind on higher things, holding her up. (laughs) With her as a completely devoted and supporting wife, such things did not matter. He could have the time to prepare sermons, to change people's lives, and later on to edit books. She enabled him to concentrate on what he was good at while she looked after the rest. She realized that not everyone should be expected to have physical skills anyway. So she, she was just an incredible companion to him. Uh, she, and I could tell you many more stories uh, about, their, about their life together. They had a, a very loving marriage, two daughters, Elizabeth and Anne. And uh, I could tell you stories about his interactions with them. I'll tell you 
two quick things. I know it's five o'clock, but but one with children and grandchildren. One of the things that that I've read that that his family, uh, especially his grandchildren, remarked about is that he was always curious and interested in what they had to say. And uh, Christopher tells a story that they were at a dinner table and the whole family was talking about the Great Awakening and John Wesley. And Christopher said, I'd recently read a book about Charles Wesley. And so I, I spoke up and said, well, I personally like the other Wesley brother, Charles Wesley. And everybody at the table laughed. And he said, everybody laughed except my grandfather. And Martin looked at him and said, well, why don't you tell us about Charles Wesley? And he quieted everybody else down. And he said, that as a little boy meant the world to me, that my grandfather was interested in what I had to say. And, and you read anecdotes like that about all of his, from his children and grandchildren, that he always was interested in what they were interested in. If they were reading a book that even at one point, one of his grandsons read a book that was questioning Christianity. And he was really doubting his faith. And Lloyd-Jones said, let me read that book with you and let's, let's talk about it. So he, he really wanted to, to invest in, in what his, his children and grandchildren were interested in. I want to close now just with, this is, a, if you have the, the two-volume uh, biography that Ian Murray wrote of, of Lloyd-Jones, in the appendix in the red volume, the last one, there's a note that he wrote to, to Bethan, and this is when he's on the boat going to a, a preaching tour in the United States. He says, quote, I cannot describe the various feelings I've experienced since I saw you last on Waterloo Station, and I'd better not try to do so. Let me say just this much. Thinking of you gives me endless happiness, and I am more certain than ever that there is no one in the world like you nor even approaching you, not in all the world. I don't know if I'm losing my reason like that poor Miss JT in St. Bride's. I don't know who that is. <laughs> but I often feel that you are with me and that I could almost talk to you. I have at times tried to imagine where you, where you all three are, talking about her and his daughters and what you are doing. I would give the whole world if you could have been with me. But there I must be content to look forward to some four weeks today when I shall DV be back with you again, looking into your eyes and sitting beside you. I think I'll sh I shall be perfectly content just to be with you and Elizabeth and Anne, just sitting with the three of you and doing nothing else. I have said in my letter telegram that I'm sending you all my love, and here I am saying it once more, end quote. So you just see the, the love and, and tenderness that he had for his, his bride. So thank you for, for coming today to, to this uh, breakout on Lloyd-Jones and the family. I'll wait around here afterwards for any other follow-on dialogue. But, but uh, let me close with a word of prayer, and then you'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the life of, of this great man who you used. And he's great because you made him great. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for how you used him and his insights that, that you gave him, especially in regards to the family life and, and, and child rearing. And we pray, Lord, just as we hear these, that they would help us in our own ministries and help us to think more biblically and more soundly about the family. We ask all this for your name and your honor and your glory. Amen.